Um, thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. Thank you to all of you for coming. And thanks to Hudson for hosting what I know will be another uh, fantastic panel. Um, I want to, to introduce the panelists briefly. Uh, all the way to your far left is Peter Rao, who's a, who's a fellow here at Hudson. To uh, his left is uh, Mike O'Hanlon, visiting from the Brookings uh, Institution. It's, uh, and, and welcome. Thank you very much for being with us. And to my right is, um, is Mike Duran, a fellow here as well as I am. And we're going to be discussing um, generally, the, the, I mean, the, the title of the panel is The Trump Administration and the Middle East, What Should America Do Next? What, um, what the panel is premised on also is actually an article that uh, Mike Duran and, and Peter Rao wrote uh, for Mosaic Magazine, which I believe came out uh, earlier during the month, September 4th, I think it's the pub date. And it's gotten a very, uh, very wide and positive response. Uh, Michael O'Hanlon responded to it also in Mosaic. And um, he had some very interesting criticisms of it and uh, some very helpful comments, which I think is going to refine different ideas about the Middle East and <laughs> what way forward the Trump administration should take. Um, and I think that even here during the next hour and a half, it will be refined even further. So it'll be the Trump administration will be ready to push forward and everything will be okay. Um, in the meantime, I want to ask uh, Mike Duran to kick off this, uh, this afternoon's proceedings. Oh, thanks, Lee. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Mike, thanks to you for joining us and for uh, responding to our article so thoughtfully. Um, Peter, what Peter and I argued um, was that the Trump administration um, is in danger of following in the footsteps of the Obama administration in the um, in the Middle East. The way we see it um, in, in recent years, especially, um, the United States has increasingly seen the Middle East uh, through a counterterrorism lens exclusively, so that the defeating Sunni terrorists, uh, first Al-Qaeda and now especially um, the Islamic State, has become the uh, the grand strategic goal of our policy in the region, or at least it's become the idea that uh, that everyone can agree on um, and pushed a lot of other ideas out. Um, this has led to a kind of um, seductive, uh, or, or it has led another idea, given another idea, a kind of seductive attraction. And, and, and that idea is that if our goal is simply to defeat um, to defeat the Islamic State, then we ought to be able to work together with the Russians and the Iranians, uh, especially who share the goal of defeating um, the Islamic State. And so we argue that uh, the Obama administration had the idea of creating a kind of a concert system uh, in the Middle East um, and was pursuing this through the means of the, uh, the nuclear negotiations. The, the, the administration claimed that the nuclear negotiations were simply um, a um, uh, nuclear non-proliferation agreement, when really it was the vehicle by which they were, um, they were engaging Iran more broadly uh, in, the, uh, in the region. Um, when things turned badly for the administration, when ISIS took Mosul and uh, they realized they had this uh, this uh, Sunni radicalism problem, the Obama administration put together a, a military strategy to defeat the Islamic State without endangering its growing cooperation with the Iranians and the, and the Russians. 
And what this, what this means is it set up a, um, a, a military plan whereby we use our, we use our air force to defeat the Islamic State and then the Russians and the Iranians fill the vacuum. Uh, and the effect of that is that we're, we're, we're very much, we're, we're very now far toward seeing a, a, a beltway from Tehran to Beirut, uh, uh, of Iranian influence, which effectively is going to split the Middle East between the North and the, the, the Middle Eastern allies of the United States between the North and the, and the South. And this is going to have very, very um, wide-ranging and deleterious strategic effects for the United States. And one of those effects we can already see right before our eyes, which is the movement of Russia into the, Iran into the Russian camp in, in, uh, in particular. And that's as a result primarily of the, Kurd of the, uh, of the, of the Kurdish question. Uh, when, if, the, if, the, uh, if the Turks want satisfaction with regard to northern Syria uh, uh, on, on the Kurdish question, the address for that increasingly is becoming Moscow rather than, uh, uh, rather than Washington. There are many other effects as well. I think if we, if we don't break up this belt that the, that, the, that the Iranians especially, but I would say the Russians and the Iranians are trying to create, um, then we're also likely going to see IRGC uh, forces on the Golan threatening the Israelis, and we're going to see increased influence of the uh, of the Iranians in Jordan, uh, in, in in Jordan as uh, as well. Um, this leads us to two um, kind of controversial conclusions. Although our, our respondents, including Mike, I'd like to I'd love it if Mike would respond to it. Didn't didn't really address what I thought were the most controversial conclusions. One is. In this debate now about whether President Trump should decertify the Iranian nuclear agreement, uh, Peter and I came to the conclusion that as much as we, uh, I was kind of speaking for myself, I don't want to put words in Peter's mouth, but as much as I abhor the JCPOA, I don't think that trashing it at this moment is the priority. The priority is breaking up this, is, the priority is Syria and breaking up this, this beltway. Also, I think we, the two of us feel that if we're not going to compete with the Iranians militarily in Syria, we're not going to roll back the JCPOA. So there has to be a, a there has to be a, a paradigm shift in Washington about competing with the Iranians um, in the region. In the region, the other conclusion we we reached is that we we have to be, as I've already alluded to, we have to be very concerned about pushing Turkey. Uh, because of this Kurdish question of pushing them into the arms of the uh, uh, of the Russians, and in order to prevent that, I don't see any any way to prevent that other than to have some kind of American base. It doesn't have to be hundreds of thousands of soldiers, but we have to have some kind of permanent military position, or semi-permanent for the foreseeable future, in the in the Middle Euphrates River Valley. If that area falls back to the to the Assad regime, which effectively means to the uh, after after Raqqa is uh, is defeated, if that area then falls back to the regime, which means to the Iranians, then I think it's inevitable that the, that the that the that that we lose 
we lose influence over the Kurdish question and, theref- and by that also influence over, uh, over Turkey. That's the, the gist of what we argue. Introduction to uh, the issue and your article, and there are two things that you mentioned that are especially timely, which we we'll want to come back to later when we open it up into a, a, a more freewheeling conversation. And one of those, I'm sure, is the Kurdish question, which people will want to hear discussed, and, and you know, a little bit, and also the JCPOA. And it is especially we have shared this uh, we have shared this stage many times, attacking the idea of the Iran deal. And so now, for you to say the Iran deal is not key. There are other things we should be uh, addressing. It's very interesting, and so I want to come back to that later, too. Uh, in the meantime, Michael O'Hanlon, if you could. Uh, and again, thanks very, thanks very kindly for joining us here. Thanks very much for the chance to be here and uh, to engage in this great debate. And I want to begin by commending the authors. And we still miss Michael at Brookings. Uh, he was really a model, if not the model, of how to make one's argument sharp and precise and really engage in debate but still do it in a fair-minded academic way where he took seriously the counter-arguments. He was really one of the most collegial people I've ever seen for that approach. So I'm trying to soften him up a little bit here. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'd like, you to, I'd like you to see more about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm on this subject. I'll say one more thing, which is... I don't know that, that Mike Duran you're describing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Great. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily expect it when you know him. But, but it really, I'm serious. It really is the way uh, he always acted as a colleague and continues to. And, and also the book, Ike's Gamble, is one of the, this may sound like damning with faint praise, one of the best written Brookings-related books I've ever read. <laughs> but it's really, it's really one of the best policy books on the Middle East that also does a wonderful period of history. And uh, so uh, hats off on that as well. I haven't had the chance to say that in public at the Hudson Institute before, so let me begin that way. And, don't stop, don't uh, stop. Okay. Well, 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 and, and now I'm going yeah, to keep in the same general theme of saying that I find the article and the analysis very good and... Uh, probably agree with 80%, and even the 20% where I don't agree, I find it sharpens my own thinking and analysis to try to figure out why not. And that's sort of typical of my interactions with Michael in particular, but now the full team here um, uh, over the years. So let me just say a couple of things. We'll probably come back to JCPOA and Iran. I'm not going to begin there at the moment. I want to begin by just highlighting, as I did in my article response, a couple of the ideas that I most like and feel that should not only be put to a yes or no vote, but actually develop further conversation and analysis around. And then maybe one or two where I may have some nuanced differences, although actually I'm not entirely sure how different uh, I am on this point from the co-authors, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll, you know, draw that out in conversation. So uh, two of the recommendations they make that I really uh, liked a lot, one was essentially, first of all, this broad analysis to to recognize that we are in this fundamental strategic competition with Iran, and it's something Michael's been saying for a long time, and certainly compellingly. Uh, and then also to look at some of the specific uh, things we have to do to keep this going, and, and, and to think about next steps. And certainly the military presence in the broader region, and the, the need for some kind of, rather than letting the American presence, which is diffuse and a little bit hard to put your finger on, and spread all over and very small, rather than having that just gradually fade away, to actually recognize it's a strategic asset and, and to consolidate it at some level, and somewhere in, in eastern Syria, perhaps even somewhere else. And it doesn't have to be a big main operating base necessarily, but I find that general way of thinking very, very productive. And this leads into another point that I 
find important and where Michael and I did talk a fair amount in his last couple of years at Brookings, which were also the first couple of years of the Syrian civil war, we need a strategy for that civil war. We've never really had one. As Michael pointed out, all we could really agree on was how to maybe go after ISIS tactically. We still don't really even have a plan for how to go after al-Qaeda in Syria. I think we'd agree. The al-Nusra front, the front for conquest, call it what you will this week. Uh, but it's still enmeshed in good parts of the territory in and around Idlib, uh, along with other groups, some of them ones we don't have big issues with, some of which some of the ones that make us nervous but aren't as extreme as the front for conquest. We don't really have a strategy for either defeating that group or protecting our allies that are intermixed within that group uh, or thinking about northwestern Syria in general. And so something that I've tried to write about over the years, and I'm just going to pick up on this point, and, and I think the writings uh, of these two gentlemen are generally consistent with this line of reasoning, uh, rather than essentially accept Assad's reconsolidation of, of Syria uh, in its current form, if that's even possible, I think we need strategies for creating zones of autonomy, which are somewhere between an Iraqi Kurdistan model and a current Syrian Kurdistan model and maybe a Somaliland model. Uh, you name it, there are a lot of models out there. We don't necessarily have to know exactly where we're headed long term. I'm not recommending the partition of Syria. I'm not even envisioning necessarily a confederation that's formalized in a way that is durable. I know a lot of Syrian opposition and activist uh, folks around town and around the world don't like the idea of, you know, dividing up Syria in any way, shape, or form. And I want to underscore what I'm proposing is something that's temporary, not permanent. But I think when I say temporary, I'm thinking 10 or 20 years, not one or two. And so we should be settling in for the long haul in how to engage in a strategy that helps create zones of relative autonomy, especially for Sunni, Sunni and Kurdish areas of Syria. And that is going to have some of the same potentially beneficial effects uh, that Michael's just talked about, but I'm sort of coming at it from a different angle and thinking more about a strategy for solving the Syrian civil war. I think over time, we'd like to see Assad relinquish power. Militarily, I don't know how to do that in a way that I could believe is consistent with American uh, realistic foreign policy options at this point or Trump administration options that it's willing to consider. So uh, I think more in terms of an integrated economic, political, military strategy, and think about how we use the levers of foreign assistance to ultimately incentivize Assad to step down. This may not solve all the problems that Michael's concerned about, but I think over time, if we're in a dilemma where we can't really live with Assad, but we also don't really know how to get rid of him, setting up an economic incentive system whereby the main populated belt of Syria is only going to be rebuilt with international dollars if and when Assad is gone. That may be our most realistic way out of this conundrum, where we don't have the military means to displace him, but we also really can't accept that he reestablished full control of the country. So I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent from where they were in the article, but I think some of these points are, are dramatized and, and actually uh, underscored, at least um, in, in, to my mind, by some of the ideas they have for essentially engaging in this long-term competition uh, and thinking not just about ISIS in the East, but more generally our regional leverage over time. Uh, a couple more ideas, and I'll finish on these, where I had maybe either somewhat different views or I just wasn't sure how the authors would respond. And so I'll put these forth more as propositions or questions than as areas of outright disagreement. Uh, but the, the sort of um, zero-sum thinking about U.S.-Iran relationship in the region, while I understand uh, where it's coming from and I accept a lot of it, I'm not sure it's realistic to push that logic to an extreme. 
of saying that most countries in the region need to be told either you're with us or you're against us, you're with us or you're with Iran, pick your friend, uh, you can't have both. Uh, to the extent that was an idea that the authors subscribed to, I'm not sure it's realistic, and let me mention a couple of countries where I don't know that that's realistic, Iraq and Jordan being at the top of my list, where I think Iraq in particular, but maybe even Jordan, and maybe even Jordan over time even more, uh, I hope not too much, but... The UAE. <laughs> fair enough, the U yeah, but, but, but countries that are going to have a temptation to play both sides, and I'm not sure that we can really advance our own interests by forcing a single choice at a single moment in time. And so I would rather that we stay a little bit more nuanced in approach, and specifically on Iraq, my very last point, and I'll stop here. Uh, Iran is so enmeshed in Iraq now that if we force Iraq to choose, I don't see us winning that uh, showdown. But I think what we need to do is recognize uh, that Iraqis would like to have more than one big friend outside of their own country. They would prefer, I think, to have us heavily engaged. So let's develop a long-term strategy for staying engaged. And to me, one of the things that's going to be crucial here is economic assistance and some kind of enduring security relationship with Iraq, even after the defeat of ISIS. So Iraq is still impoverished by low oil prices and uh, a decade and a half of war and decades of misrule. They need help. We don't, I'm not proposing a Marshall Plan for Iraq of many billions of dollars a year, but I think something in the range of one to two billion a year, same kind of amount of money we're providing to Afghanistan in, in aid, uh, is roughly what's realistic and desirable. And I would provide that even if Iran stays very engaged in Iraq. I might look for ministries where Iran's influence could be somewhat less actively witnessed, uh, maybe try to use the aid leverage to, to try to engage in the competition. Uh, that, you know, we all recognize to be underway. But I don't think I would try to presuppose that we could win that competition in a single uh, opening bid for, uh, you know, asking Iraq to choose one side or the other. So that may or may not be a disagreement, and maybe I'll just leave it there as a provocation and question uh, and look forward to continuing the conversation. Michael, thank you very much. Um, you, uh, I'm glad that you actually uh, dwelt on some of the details regarding Syria, since this is one of the big points from Peter and uh, Mike's piece to talk about how we need to look at Syria, so I think that's important. The other thing that I really want to get into, though, after, again, when we start up a more uh, conversation after, it's, is it a zero-sum game? You, your case is uh, very strong that it's not a zero-sum game. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll start to get a, a picture of how we perceive the region then, if it's, zero, if it's a zero-sum game or if it's not, or how we can work with different people who also seem to be working with uh, adversarial, adversarial figures in the region. So One quick asterisk yeah. uh, for anybody who saw my article, and the subtitle in the magazine was, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. Right. It wasn't my subtitle. No, a lot of, no, no, but a lot of people, I think most people in this room and in Washington know how headlines and subtitles are um, used and misused. And so uh, I don't disagree that Iran sees itself in a zero-sum competition with us right. and that we should suspect any time that we're both present that there is an element of that. Right. I'm just trying to devise the most realistic strategy that I think would hopefully advance our own interest right. in that kind of a situation. No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very happy it was titled that because it helps set up, uh, you know, I think an interesting discussion to what extent that, you know, to what extent that is the picture, what the picture is. So thanks again. Um, Peter, if you, would, uh, if you would like to continue. Sure. Thanks, Lee. Thanks to Thank the you. mics. Uh, thanks for your response piece. It's a very good and useful piece. I think one of the advantages of co-authoring an article and then appearing on a panel is we have twice the time that Mike does. 
Michael <laughs> Hammond does to describe yeah. it. So. Let me uh, let me take another cut, opening up with, uh, I think, topics both of you and even Lee mentioned, the JCPOA, and then eventually I think I'll try to hit on some of the questions that Lee, or sorry, that, uh, that Michael Hanlon raised. The first is just setting the context for, uh, I think, the JCPOA and how closely interwoven it is, what President Trump inherited with um, Iran's regional position. Part of the reason why I think um, there's such a feverish debate over the Iran nuclear deal today is because the Obama administration was willing to make a series of concessions to the Iranians under the assumption that eventually, one, for example, the sunset clauses run out, or secondly, um, uh, when Iran is able to, uh, was granted uh, the right to enrich, when it's able to fully take on those activities without restrictions, the loose language on ballistic missile testing, among other, uh, among other issues in the JCPOA. Once that all uh, came to fruition, Iran would be uh, perhaps a moderated country, a changed country. And so the concessions weren't really all that dramatic of concessions from that point of view. What we've seen uh, uh, in the last year and a half since implementation day in January, unfortunately, is the reverse, that the Iranians um, uh, have not moderated, uh, they have not moved in a healthy direction. And so I think this sets up the feverish debate that's taking place in Washington, where a lot of um, opponents of the JCPOA, those on the center-right, say, uh, well, now we have a sunset clause, but it's not going to be a moderate or any regime that is in power in 2025, but quite a different one. And so we have to fix uh, and amend, um, and then some argue actually pull out or decertify uh, the deal. And then, of course, there's a legal component to it where every 90 days the president has to make just that decision, which I think adds additional impetus uh, to it. So um, as Mike mentioned, Mike Duran, I have to remember to use last names in this panel, um, if we do decertify, it sets up a fight on day one with our with our European allies. The Europeans have made that quite clear. Um, there was some positive language at UNGA from President Macron, who mentioned that he's willing to entertain revisions to the, to the JCPOA, uh, just how to do that and how to fix some of the shortcomings. I think that should be uh, music to the ears uh, of the Trump administration and to people working on this issue. But uh, just because of the viciousness of that fight and the fact that uh, we really don't have all that much leverage, given that uh, the Europeans most likely won't come along, which then forces the U.S. to think, do we want to impose sanctions that put the Europeans before a choice of the American economy or uh, staying in the agreement? Maybe that's uh, actually I'm sure that's a choice where they would, where they would side with us. But the amount of acrimony it would produce would be uh, very damaging. Um, so uh, that's I don't think a position we want to be in. And on the other side, uh, the Iranians can actually recapture a lot of their leverage unilaterally which, as I just mentioned, doesn't apply to us, given that we have our partners and allies in the UN process, and that they could uh, very quickly begin to uh, re-enrich to higher levels. So uh, we're set up there with a real conundrum, a real problem, a heavy debate in DC. And uh, I think that's partially the reason why Mike and I, Mike Duran and I, are focused on rebuilding our positions of power in the region um, and trying to fasten a policy that rolls back Iranian power, contains it in certain areas, um, and thereby sets us up for, I think, a better discussion with our allies and opportunity to fix the deal uh, down, uh, down the stretch. One example of this um, would be, and we all know today there's, there's the big referendum in KRG, would be to work with, as we mentioned in the piece, uh, allies on the ground, sub-state actors, develop areas where the United States can build, uh, build leverage and independent, um, in independent uh, areas of power to deal with some of the problems we have to deal with the Iranian bank breakout, to try to sever that belt that's taking place or that's being constructed, as Mike Duran put it, from Tehran uh, to Beirut. So um, that really uh, uh, 
Speaking of the KRG, next door brings us, I think, to the most immediate question, which is the Syrian Kurds, and in particular, how do we uh, avoid a Kurdish-Turkish war that uh, potentially is on the horizon, or the Kurds moving into the Russian, um, the Russian uh, uh, Iranian camp? The problem is, is that as soon as we leave, um, and I had another discussion with a colleague on this this morning, as soon as we leave, uh, the Americans leave, our proxies are bound, or the Syrian Kurds are about to say, "Thank you very much." Um, and now, what are the new power realities and dynamics? Uh, in the area. And that's, I think, the big fear that Mike Duran and I have, that um, we've built up this proxy force, we've tied a bow on it, and now it's going to move over uh, to what are uh, kind of an anti-American coalition um, in Syria. So um, uh, I think the, 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 the meta-thesis of our piece, the meta-contention um, uh, uh, is that uh, we have to look beyond kind of the immediate counterterrorism components. Uh, Duran mentioned this uh, earlier, and think about what what really the strategy for the region is. What are what 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 are state and the most powerful actors of these states trying to accomplish in the region? How do we uh, ensure that the American lead regional order that's been in place for decades remains robust, and our allies uh, can avoid some of these pressure points? And um, I thought your suggestion about um, about uh, American troop presence near Idlib. Um, to potentially help mitigate some of the issues surrounding the Afrin Canton. I think that's a healthy um, uh, suggestion. I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, the problem, of course, I think with part of this discussion is, well, all three of us are in agreement, I, I think, on the core issue, which is uh, uh, a U.S. troop presence in the Merv in the middle Euphrates River Valley. Um, it is politically so insatiable or politically so unpopular uh, in the country. And that's really part of the brilliance, I think, of um, of of part of the Obama and, and potentially the Trump foreign policy is that the domestic politics, it's brilliant, but on foreign policy, it could have real costs um, because the American people still have in their minds uh, not just 9-11, but periodically are reminded of the dangers of these Sunni Islamist groups in places like Barcelona uh, and Paris. Um, so um, that's, generally my, uh, that's generally my take. I think that um, um, that one way to potentially uh, delay or avoid the choices that you mentioned in places like Jordan is to engage in a strategic competition that alleviates the pressure on these allies. Um, we should do whatever we can to keep the Iranians and the IRGC off um, uh, the borders of our allies. And I think in the process then that will make it easier in places like Amman um, uh, to take decisions that uh, that are good for us um, and don't put a, as much pressure on, on, on places like Jordan that, which I'm very concerned about given the number of refugees and, uh, uh, and, and Iranian influence. So um, with that, I'll just hand it back to Lee. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, there are a couple uh, really, really good points which I want to use to come into the, the, the zero-sum game of things, especially when you were talking about, um, when you were talking about the Syrian Kurds. Before that, I just want to say, I believe that Michael O'Hanlon makes a point in his uh, Response: We talk a lot about what the Trump administration inherited from the Obama White House, but there is also a point to be made about what the Obama White House inherited from the right. Trump administration. And I'm not Bush administration from the Bush administration. Sorry, yes. Um, and I'm not just talking about I'm not just talking about the problems in terms of war and troop commitments. The reality is that overturning Iraq in that way was going to affect the dynamics of the region. And in some ways, it's possible to look at what the Obama administration did as a continuation of that. Again, this is, I, I, 
I do not uh, like the way different things were left. But if let's see it the way, for instance, the way you guys make the case and the way all three of you make the case. At a certain point, uh, the United States realized the Obama administration believed it was overcommitted in the region, right? So what do you do then? What are the different issues? And we'll come back to the Syrian Kurds. Mike, I want to start with you on this. With the Syrian Kurds, we say it's a bad idea to let them go to the Russians and the Iranians. But given the fact that at a certain point the United States is going to leave at one point or another, what are the choices we have to convince different allies that we are serious? How do we convince them, for instance, it's a zero-sum game? Either you're with us or you're with them, and if you're with them, we're going to make you pay. So how do we, what's the case that we make to allies in the region, or prospective allies in the region? Uh, so I would, I would start not with the case, but what's the posture that we need to be convincing? Because it isn't argument that carries the day, it's, the, it's power. Right. Okay. So um, we've got, Peter made a good point, which of course should be the starting point for all of this, which is that the American public is very skeptical about uh, uh, about a major um, troop commitment, um, and particularly on on the right, uh, for Donald Trump's base, the commitment of troops to Syria has become synonymous with um, with uh, you know feckless globalist boondoggle. So he's very reluctant. Uh, almost as reluctant, probably as reluctant as as President Obama was to make a troop commitment. Um, And if you look at, listen to the statements that he's made about, you know, we're we're in Syria for one reason, which is to kill ISIS. And that's it. Uh, You can see that uh, coming out really clearly. So that's a a constraint that we're we're under. But I would just say, look, what are the realities of the situation in terms of how we can influence it? We, we We have three choices. Three, three basic choices. Either, either we do it ourselves. Either we put forces on the ground ourselves that make us very convincing when we when we talk with friends and adversaries. Number two is we build up proxies who are beholden to us and who 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 basically share our share our our our, our vital our vital interests. Or number three, we make a um, we, we, we abandon positions to our adversaries, the Russians and, and the Iranians. What I believe the Obama administration did was the latter. I think they just abandoned positions to the Russians and the Iranians, and they, it was appeasement, it was, it was retreat, and they called it peace, and they, they called it a new good feeling. And they, and they went, uh, they went uh, overboard to depict it to the American public as a change of direction by the Iranians when it was actually a change of direction by, uh, uh, by us. The, the Trump administration, and I, I think a lot of people were, a lot of the analysts in Washington were talking about all this, I don't think have made the full mental switch. If we're not going to put a large, if we're not going to have a large troop presence, then we have to work with allies. If we want to work effectively with allies, we have to take on board their concerns and their interests, their definition of their concerns and their interests. And when I say that, the, the one that I'm thinking of primarily here is Turkey. Okay, right. Because every time the Turks have said, 
you're building the, 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 the PYD, the Kurds that we're working with in Syria are the Syrian arm of the PKK, the, the, those, those Kurds who are seeking uh, uh, autonomy or independence from, from, from Turkey. Uh, and every time the Turks have said, you're, you're giving strategic depth to the PKK, we've told them to get stuffed, basically. Right? Or we, we, we tell them, no, actually the PYD in Syria is not the PKK, which is just not true. Right? It's just not true. We're not, we're not fooling the Turks when we say that. We're just insulting them. So uh, uh, the Turks have to be part of our... The Tur- if, we're, if, if, we're, if we want to do something against the Iranians, then we have to work with the Turks. We have to work with the Saudis, we have to work with the Emiratis, the Jordanians, all our, the Israelis, all our traditional allies. That's what we have to work with. Now, it has to be some mix. Also, I, I totally agree with what, with what Mike said, that uh, you know, he would like to build up autonomous positions of power. I think, for instance, where we, the, the, the place we should be thinking about this right now, we should all be discussing it, is what is the interim authority that will govern Raqqa after the, after the fall of ISIS? I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. It, the, the PYD, the, the, the Kurds are going to take it, and they're not going to want to leave. Not because they regard it as, ter- as Kurdish territory, but because they regard it as a great um, lever Right, a great card to play in the negotiations with the Americans, with the Russians, with the Assad regime, with the Iranians, and with everybody, and with, and even the Turks to a certain extent, and you know, in a in a in a inter in a, in a, in a I can't find the word I'm looking for, uh, with the international system in order to get what they uh, 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 to get what they want. We should be we should be working together with our allies, especially the Jordanians, the Emirat Emiratis. Other, other, uh, the Saudis who have resources that they can work, that they can use to help us do this. We should be putting together an interim authority there and building up a local force that is beholden to us or to our allies and that can keep the regime out, keep the Iranians out. And it, it would not be that costly. I mean, we are, we are the greatest power on earth. If we want to do that, we can do that. And that, that I think is the way to find a middle ground between a large U.S. Troop presence and um, a large U.S. troop presence, and uh, um, uh, uh, the, to, to to avoid having a large U.S. troop presence, but to still have have influence. But in order to do that effectively in that part of the world, it requires some presence, some direct American uh, uh, American presence. But the the point I think that Peter and I were trying to make in the article is that it, what it requires, first of all, is a change of perspective. What, what I agreed with what Mike just said is we have to be building up positions of power, positions of autonomous power, so that when if we want to act, and if, if we want to inflict pain on the Russians and the Iranians, we have we we have a we have a uh, we have levers to pull, we have positions from which we can strike. Right now, you know, one of the things that you hear is that people are the United States is afraid of antagonizing the Russians and the Iranians because. Our forces in Iraq are now hostages to fortune, right? Because the, what if the Iranians decide to ca- start causing us pain? We, we're sitting, we're sitting ducks there. That should be immediately. If that, if that is an argument in this, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, situation room when President Trump is talking to his advisors, if if uh, if, uh, if General Mattis says, "Well, we can't do that because we're vulnerable in Iraq," right. that is an argument to say, "Well, we we, we better get not vulnerable." 
right? It should be the Iranians on the other side who are always making that argument about themselves. We can't do X, Y, or Z because the Americans will cause us will, will, will cause us pain. So we, we need to rethink the whole map in, 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 in that regard. Let me ask Michael O'Hanlon, I mean, because you, you are describing, let me put it like this, we used to perceive, the United States used to perceive the, the Middle East as a zero-sum region, and that's why we had well, why Turkey is a NATO member, why we had allies, uh, why there's Israel, why there's Jordan, why Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates. So has the nature of the region changed in some ways? Why we have to, maybe it's unfair to say the nature of the region, have our, have our priorities changed? So that's why our, what we've called our traditional allies, why it doesn't seem to be the same thing. I don't know. It's a good question, but I'll say this, and maybe I'm going to sort of try to burnish my hawkish credentials to allow right. softer <laughs> comments later. But, 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 but on, the issue, on the general issue of the JCPOA and, and how to think about Iran and where it's going and where it will likely be, I, w I agree that uh, even though I, too, at this point would, would sustain the Iran nuclear deal, uh, at least for a while, I think that the sunset concept was really a flawed intellectual construct. Now, maybe it was the best you could get, and you ultimately had to take that or nothing, but it seemed to me the obvious way to go in the negotiation was to go for an indefinite series of limitations, because for one thing, that is the way non-proliferation non treaties are always written. They don't always succeed, but that's the international norm. Secondly, and more to the point on this question, we had no realistic reason to expect that Iran would change in eight or ten years. And if we did, we were being naive. And yes, President Obama sometimes let on that he had that hope. But the administration would never say that was their actual expectation. Uh, they were clearly divided. He said very clearly, he said it doesn't really matter if they moderate. It would be great if they did, but if they, it's not the issue. But I'm agreeing with Michael and Peter in the sense that I think that those words that he sometimes would use were in competition with other words that he would sometimes use. Uh, and the, the whole implication of an eight to 10 year sunset uh, time frame, which is that Iran's basic interests and behavior might change in eight or 10 years, which I don't think is, is a sustainable proposition. So I think President Obama sort of gave himself away that the only reason you would sort of see an eight to 10 year delay as being worthwhile is if you thought something good could happen in those eight to ten years that would change the calculus thereafter, or if it was the best thing you could get. If it is the best thing you can get, it still may not be a good deal, but at least you've admitted that that's your calculus. In this case, I thought that uh, President Obama did sort of imply, and there were various comments in the last couple of years of his administration where he in particular would sometimes let on that he thought maybe alignments could change. That's not where I'm coming from. I think eight to ten years is a very fast and short period of time to expect fundamental change in Iran's calculus towards the region. So in that sense, I accept that we are in a competition with them. The question is, what are realistic standards for competing with them? And where can you really force to the mat a zero-sum choice among your partners, allies, or even adversaries? So to me, that's the um, more operable question. But, uh, but I think I begin with a large, largely an agreement with Peter and Michael about how to think about Iran and whatever evolution may or may not occur in its domestic and foreign policy. The other point I wanted to make, if I could, that you got at and Michael got at, talking about American politics and that Peter had brought up in the first place, I think we have to avoid selling ourselves short. You know, it's very common, no one said it here today, um, and maybe it's more common you know, in some parts of town than others. We, we like to say we have no strategic patience as, a, as an American people. Um, I don't see the case for that. 
We're still in Korea. I was in Korea last weekend, and we're still there 70 years later. Now, sure, Korea is a great ally now, but a lot of 35 years it wasn't a great ally. 35 years it was an autocracy that was economically behind the North in many sectors. And of course, we had the Cold War to keep us engaged and to view it as important after the initial mistakes of saying it was not within our security perimeter. But once we made that mistake once, we didn't make it again, and here we are 70 years later. And sure, Jimmy Carter toyed with pulling out because of human rights concerns and democracy concerns. We've been very resolute there. In the broader Middle East, yes, we've danced around and been tempted by certain uh, shifting loyalties. And, you know, Mike's great book gets at this in sort of in the 1950s context and how we, you know, we had to think about political reform and sort of anti-colonialism and anti-communism and prioritize these to some extent. Uh, but nonetheless, we've been fairly steadfast in regard to a few countries for a long time. In, in the case of Egypt, in my opinion, almost slightly too steadfast. Uh, and so I think Americans are actually willing to stick it out at a manageable level of effort. We are a superpower. We have more casualty aversion now than we had in the 1990s for occasional losses that are seen in the context of a strategy if people think the strategy makes sense. Now, you still have to, we have to do our job well enough to come up with a strategy that makes sense. And if people smell out a poorly thought through strategy, then yes, you do lose domestic support, as you should. But the notion that the American political system or public are not willing to sustain long-term uh, engagements, I think, is not supported by history. And so I would actually challenge us to get away from this notion that we always need an exit strategy, or we should always be saying that our presence is temporary. I'm not sure our presence has to be thought of as so temporary. Very last point on this one, President Trump uh, went through uh, a fairly tortured period in August and July thinking about Afghanistan. And, you know, his number one uh, nemesis in that whole debate seemed to be himself just, and his campaign promises. Just like President Obama's number one nemesis in every one of his Afghanistan reviews was his own nagging doubt about whether this was doable. But in neither case did the public or the opposite political party make a big deal out of our sustained presence in Afghanistan. And the public's been a lot more upset about the NFL kneeling controversy than about any tweaking to our troop levels on Afghanistan policy. So I think that the bottom line is if, if, if we have a few thousand troops here and a few thousand troops there, and they're in a generation-long struggle against extremism, and the strategy is mostly holding water, the U.S. public will support it. I don't see any counter-argument to that, or at least I don't see any convincing counter-argument to that proposition. I'd pick up on that. First of all, I would just say, if I ever write a book, I'm going to go on a panel with Mike O'Hanlon a, a few months later. But um, I, I think that's right. I mean, I'm just reminded of the of the Iraq surge, the original surge, and how deeply unpopular that pulled, how many uh, elements of the national security bureaucracy were opposed to it. But the presidential pulpit can be very powerful. And even at that point, President Bush did not have all that much political capital left to left to spare, but he was resolute in carrying it out. And so I think uh, presidential leadership does change the game and what, what is possible. But I also, I also want to pick up on one other point where I don't think we're in disagreement, but I do think there's a distinction between uh, whether or not a competition is zero sum and uh, the advance of Iranian power in the region and how far forward they have broken out uh, over the last four or five years. So from my point of view, and I think this is where maybe there's a bridge or I don't want to speak for Mike Duran, but I think there's a bridge between us and what you were just describing, um, is that we just want to, I think, change the choices that these countries or these uh, p potential allies or actual allies have to make and that we alleviate the pressure that is being placed on them. So I think there are a series of moves you can make. 
the ones that you were describing, like the uh, autonomous zones of power, uh, troops in the middle uh, Euphrates River Valley, potentially uh, an American presence by Idlib, that can actually change the choices that countries have to make. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the only way to go because, and I should have reiterated this uh, in the opening, I, I don't think that, um, even though we've set it up somewhat this way, that there really is a, a, a different strategic approach that one can take to counterterrorism and the other to state competition in the region. They're one and the same. And uh, I think as long as we focus on counterterrorism and, uh, and, 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 as President Trump eloquently put it, bomb the shit out of some of these areas, making way for the Iranians, it's just going to give rise, I think, to more Sunni extremism and an ISIS 2.0 or other forms of um, Sunni extremism. So uh, I think it all has to be viewed as one uh, large challenge, and I think our strategy should reflect that. And to the extent that we can uh, give people security, give them a sense um, that they have a stake in their own future, I think we're much, we're, we're much more likely uh, to beat back this problem. Now, we're in a much more difficult position than we were years ago. I mean, I'm reminded of Again, going back to the surge, the tribal structures that were in place in Anbar. Today around Mosul, so many of these groups have been uh, destroyed in the city itself. There are very few partners. But, you know, these still are ancient, longstanding uh, uh, relationships. And there are people that we can cultivate there that we can work with. Um, so I'm hopeful that it's possible. But um, I think that the scope, size, scale, whatever one wants to call it, of the Iranian breakout um, does not mean that all of us that there's more compatibility now than there would be if they were, I think, more contained or boxed in. I don't think we necessarily disagree over that, but I think it's just a worthwhile point in making. Let me ask something coming back to the uh, the zero sum thing because I actually have been thinking about it like that. And so you guys make a point, and I think it's I think it's uh, you don't stick it in everyone's face, but I believe this is a point you make. You say that we are right now focused on this counterterrorism campaign the anti-ISIS campaign, and at the same time, this is helping empower the Iranians. So what do we do with the anti-ISIS campaign? I'm going to, Mike, if you would start, and then I'm going to ask all of you to, you know, to address that. I mean, this is our regional, this appears to be our regional priority right now. And as you guys, uh, you point out in the piece, this was the president's number one priority. So where are we with that? And how is this complicating or, uh, how is it complicating or vitiating the president's decision to push back on Iran as well? So the uh, Raqqa is going to fall in uh, Raqqa is going to fall in in the coming months, <laughs> um, and I you know two or three months. Uh, so uh, the and it and it is going to be defeated by this Kurdish force. YPG that, that, that we have helped to build up, um, which has Arab auxiliaries working, working with it. While we have been pushing that, the Russians and the Iranians have been, have been, uh, have been uh, racing with us to develop as much influence as they can in the middle Euphrates River Valley. They have always had the regime has always had a um, uh, has always had a a base in Deir Ezzor city, so, so down the Euphrates. Assad regime, you mean? The Assad regime, right? They're building that up now. They're coming from the they're coming from the east, from Iraq, where we have helped them move across. 
So you, if you have down the Euphrates, you have in, on, on the Iraqi side, you have Qayyim. Up from Qayyim, you have Derazor, And then up from Derazor, you have Raqqa. So we're going to, our allies, the, the YPG, who also have an, a line out to the Russians and the Iranians, and they have always had good relations with them, they're going to take, they're going to take Raqqa. The, the, the Assad regime is working to build up his position in Derazor city. And then the Iranians are coming from Iraq. Uh, as well, at a, at a snail's or not at a not at a quick pace. When I say they're rushing uh, or racing, they want to they want to create a presence and create the sense of inevitability of them having this territory, right? The 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 size of forces they have, the capabilities they have compared to us, are small. If if we decided that we want to drive them out, right. we can. We can do that, but they want to create a sense that 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 inevitably the Assad regime that that the Assad regime has won, Russia and Iran have won, and they're going to and 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 they're and 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 they're going to and they're going to take over. On this issue of the zero sum, I sort of agree with Mike and I sort of disagree with him. I I, I wouldn't I don't think the question is it a zero sum game with Iran is the key question, right? I think it's just important that we understand that the Iranians want to drive us out of the region and they want to undermine our allies. And they're not stupid people. They know that they do not have the capabilities to drive us out. So what they want to do is weaken us over, uh, uh, they want to weaken us over time and they want to increase their regional position, right? And, 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 and decrease ours. Right, so there are situations in which we're going to have to tolerate their influence for sure. Uh, absolutely, there are lots of situations where it may even be in our interest that 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 uh, that some of our allies have, uh, you know, in, interaction with them. But we should always be in a position where we can decide what works for us and what doesn't, and 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 that we can, if something is a vital interest of ours, we can ensure that it. Uh, that it uh, that it doesn't happen, and so what that means is we have to start. I think we have to start from the principle when we look at the region. There's a there's something about the Middle East that makes us disaggregated. We talk about the Syrian file as if it's got nothing to do with the Iraq file, and we talk about the Iranian nuclear file as if it's got nothing to do with the, with the Arab-Israeli peace process, and so on and so forth. We have to start from we have to we have to have a regional uh, an approach to the whole region. What's going on in the region for everyone in the region is a Russian-Iranian alliance is in a struggle for mastery, for control of the region, and the center of gravity of that fight is in Syria. We see all these different arenas, and we think, well, I, I, I recently had a, a discussion with a, 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 a very um, distinguished foreign policy analyst, not just an analyst, somebody who served in government, and he said, what you're saying is crazy. Because if you go around all the different conflicts in the region, there are five of them. There are five major conflicts. And in four of them, we don't have conflicting relations with the Iranians. Right? And right. that's like, you know, that's like saying in the, in the Cold War, well, you know, really in Albania, we have the same interests as the Soviets. And in Bulgaria, I mean, those Bulgarians are kind of bad people and, and, and so on. And then, and we have this colossus, the Soviet Union, that ends up taking over all of, all, all, all of, all of Eastern Europe. So it's, to me, that's to miss the forest for the trees enti entirely. So the principle has to be, we start from the principle that our job in the region is to build up our allies against the Iranians. L L less, okay. less sentence? 
Yeah. And if we, you know, in, in certain situations, we will decide, aha, in this situation, we will not do this. But our default setting should always be that they are sons of bitches and they need to be weakened. If the priority, and I want to go to Michael O'Hanlon immediately after, and then Peter, the whoever it was you were speaking with, whichever foreign policy analyst it, it was you were speaking with, if you look at the way both the Obama administration framed it and now the Trump administration framed it, I would make the entirely, I would make the case entirely the same way. Well, we share interest with the Iranians and with the Russians because our big problem is ISIS. Our big problem is Sunni extremism. So we share an interest with them in Iraq. We share an interest with them in Syria. We share an interest with them in Lebanon as well. There is no place that we are not, that we do not think that Sunni extremism is a big problem. So I think he does have a comprehensive, there is some sort of comprehensive view. That's why I asked before, I said, it really does in some ways come down to a fairly stark choice. So I know we speak about this a lot in the way that you and I see it, it's about the Iranians. Other people don't see it, including the Trump administration. Let, let me come to my good friend Michael's uh, defense here. Okay. As well, because, <laughs> because, That's uh, what I wanted to get. All right. there's an, one way to put it is, in addition to the threat that Iran poses directly in a number of places, Iran and Russia and Assad are bad at countering Sunni extremism. They produce it. Exactly. They don't counter it. They produce it. Assad has killed half a million people and turned half of his population into refugees or IDPs. This is not a recipe for defeating extremism. And Maliki, uh, after having done okay with the surge process, then decided to start trying to arrest even the, the most pro-reform Sunnis in his government. This is not a recipe for defeating Sunni extremism. And at least in Iraq, we got to see in vivid display very quickly, almost like a laboratory experiment that had been fast-forwarded, just how fast broken politics that become excessively sectarian and chauvinistic can rekindle a threat that we thought had disappeared or been defeated for at least indefinitely, if not for good. So. I'm afraid of Sunni extremism, and that's why I cannot put myself in lockstep with Assad in particular, and therefore also not with Iran or Russia. Very well stated. Um, Peter? Well, I agree with all of that. Um, I agree with all of that. One, I think, uh, maybe slightly overlooked group, group is Nusra in, in, um, in um, Idlib, outside of Aleppo, in uh, in in north uh, northwest Syria, and um, uh, it seems to me that um, just because we're talking about the campaign against counterterrorism, which was your initial question, it seems to me that they've grown a little bit more savvy than ISIS has. So that they've developed these distribution networks, they control the smuggling routes, they've created like arbitrage opportunities with things like the purchase of sugar and, and reselling of it in Turkey, among other places. So. Um, I think that's one area that we've basically considered to be contained, the province to be off limits. Um, but uh, eventually there's probably going to be a reckoning there as well. Um, but other than that, I don't really have all that much to add to what these two gentlemen I guess what I was trying to do is, and, and maybe unfairly, so I'll, I'll move on, but I was trying to make it as stark as possible because I really do see these particular campaigns as you can't do them both at the same time. And we believe that we're able to do both at the same time. And it seems on the ground, we can't do both things at the same time. We can't push back on Iran. If you speak to different people, they will say, and I agree with you guys saying the JCPO, the JCPOA is not the most important thing. And we need to look at the rest of the region and push back on uh, the other bad things Iran is doing. And you say, well, how are you pushing back? Because in Iraq, we're, we're, we're partnered 
We're partnered with Shia militias that are backed by the Iranians. Uh, in Lebanon, we're working with the Hezbollah Auxiliary. In Syria, we've totally given Assad free reign. So we're not doing both at the same time. So it seems the Trump administration, as the Obama administration before it, did perceive this to be zero sum. You can't do both at the same time. Well, I, I think you can, you can, uh, I think you can say that you can do counterterrorism that helps or makes way or empowers the Iranians. But I think if you're pushing back on the Iranians, that inherently has counterterrorism, uh, virtues to it or positive effects. At least that's how I see it. Although I see head shaking. No, I'm, I'm just listening. <laughs> no, you, you, you can. Look, right. the, the Obama administration, Mike doesn't like me to go partisan on him. I don't mind. The, uh, yeah, sure. the, 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 the Obama administration, um, remember in, in President Obama in a, in a speech before uh, West Point said that he was going to build up, uh, he was going to build up Syrian forces on the ground. Right. And uh, they we, by the time that that program ended, they, they had they had trained five guys. So, I, I mean, cl clearly they were th this was all for show. I mean, he told us he was doing that and he wasn't doing it. Right? So and the the. the um, you you can counter Sunni extremism and the Iranians simultaneously, but you have to build the force that will do it. But those five guys, I mean, I still say it's remarkable. They were able to get five Syrian Sunnis who said, we'll go with that deal. We won't fight Assad. Right. We'll just fight ISIS. That's what I mean. They perceived it's zero sum. It's one, not the other. When you say you guys can't no. do this. No, we, do we could look, we it, it, look at what the experience we had in, in Iraq and the surge. This is the Middle East and people are going to defend their homes. If you, if, if we, if we went into, into Raqqa and, and took, and vented the people there, right, and took pe local people from, from, from Raqqa and said, we want to put you in a militia that will defend Raqqa from all, all outsiders. Could we not do that? We can do that. It's not, that is not, and, and, and so, and, and you just have to go to a few, a few key, uh, a few key cities or large, large towns. And build up a force like that with an American, with an American auxiliary force and or a coalition force made up of Americans, Jordanians, and, uh, and 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 others, in the background to build them up and to watch them and to and to liaise and, and to liaise with them. And if you've done that, you've 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 broken the the Iranian belt. Peter, were you gonna? Yeah. Well, here's something. There's something, uh, Michael Hanley. You were saying something before, which I thought was very interesting, when you were talking about Korea and our long-term presence there. But it's striking me right now, looking at looking at Korea, it's a fascinating situation because, in a sense, our alliance with the South has put us in a strange position regarding right now the men our, our president calls Rocket Man. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to come at is. In the Middle East right now, are there different issues, different problems that our alliances can get us in? It seems like that's a place where the alliance is uh, double-edged. So, are there places in the region where, you know, Mike speaks about Mike speaks about Turkey uh, as a NATO member? There are other people who think who have a lot of problems with Turkey, especially the current government, the AKP government. So, are there ways that our allies can drag us into unforeseen problems in the region? Sure, uh, but I think we don't have to view this as either you're all with an ally or uh, all against an ally. I was, I know you wanted to talk about the Kurdish referendum. I don't like it myself. I don't think we owe the Kurds support for the referendum or even, frankly, tolerating the referendum. Others may disagree on that, but um, that's just, I'm, I'm using that as an example. 
of where I think you can be pretty friendly to somebody and still dissociate yourself from their agenda. And one of the things I've learned from Mike Duran over the years is that creating leverage has its own value because it gives you more ways to sort of, you know, adjust the rheostat. You don't have to view this as either you're all in or you're not at all with them. And, and so depending on the issue, the ally and the agenda, I would, I would try to be for or against what they're trying to do. And there are cases where you can threaten to cut them off entirely if they go so far as to fundamentally imperil your core interests. Mm -hmm. In other cases, you want to use more of a shade of gray approach. But uh, yeah, absolutely, different groups have, you know, uh, and the one I mentioned earlier that uh, concerns me as well beyond the Iraqi Kurds at the moment is uh, the Egyptians and President Sisi. And what concerns, you about? what concerns me is that he's Mubarak on steroids. You know, he's got a thousand or more people you know, in severe prison terms without proper trial, and um, he's he's conflating uh, legitimate concerns about extremism with his own desire not to have domestic political opposition, and we're essentially going along with it. And so I think we've got to find a way. You know, I'm not suggesting we abandon Sisi. But I don't think we should be giving Egypt the same amount of aid that we gave in better days. Not that there were such incredibly better days. Uh, but I'd find a way, uh, knowing that the Saudis are going to keep him with enough money that he's not going to fall from power anyway. So we, we sort of have the luxury of being able to make a point, partly for the sake of making a point. You know, I'd be giving half as much aid these days uh, until I see some progress on how he treats his domestic opponents. Um, let me just change it quickly. I, I want to open it up uh, to questions and answers in one second. Um, well, you will have questions, and hopefully there will be answers on this side. Um, but, uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, one important alliance, certainly for the United States, uh, is Israel and what their, you know, what their perception right now of the different problems are, especially in Syria. And we know, or we believe, that they weren't entirely uh, happy after their visit here, uh, their visit here last month, I believe it was, and then they went to Moscow right after that. So... What, what, what's, what's your sense of what they're saying about Trump, Trump I, I, regional strategy? Um, so you, you're referring to, you know, in, in early July, um, the Americans announced that they'd come to a de-escalation agreement right. with, the, yes. uh, with the Russians in the south. And then uh, there was a lot of um, reports in the Israeli press that the Israelis were not happy about that because it didn't, uh, it didn't have any provision about the Iranians. I've heard totally conflicting ah, okay. uh, accounts of what happened there. So... Um, some people saying that the, that the the Russians and the Americans did agree um, that there shouldn't be an Iranian presence in the south, um, and others saying that they they didn't. So I, I won't even bother to try to figure out what happened there and all the messaging that's going on. But clearly, the Israeli concern, which has been they've expressed for years now, is that they don't want strategic weaponry going from uh, uh, from. Uh, Iran or the Assad regime to Hezbollah by way of Syria. They don't want, uh, they don't want the, the Syrian territory to be used for cross-border raids uh, into, into Israel. And they don't want, they don't want uh, an Iranian uh, or Iranian-dominated troop presence on the, uh, on the Golan. And basically, they don't, they don't want Syria to become uh, an, an, an Iranian um, an Iranian playground more more broadly uh, more broadly speaking I think that that if the United States were to engage in the kind of thing that that I'm suggesting let me let me give you my fantasy 
of what we would do, okay. which we're not going to do, but it's the, it's the, I think it should be the starting point of what we're, we're okay. talking about. Please. And I'm not talking about, so I'm not talking about remaking Syria, toppling Assad, and so on, but we should, we, we should desire to have a belt of influence working with the Jordanians and the Israelis. From the Israeli, from the Golan, from the Israeli Golan all the way up to Deir Ezzor. You know, I don't know how many kilometers in, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 kilometers in, whatever, uh, with no Iranians, no Hezbollah, nothing, right? And we should support the, the, the Israelis and the Jordanians in policing that aggressively, and we should use our own, uh, our own considerable assets to send a message to the, I'm talking about in terms of, uh, of air defense assets and others to tell the Iranians and the Russians that if they, if they violate that, uh, that belt, um, they'll, they'll be in trouble. Uh, we should do, like I said, we should put some kind of force into the middle Euphrates River Valley. Enough, big enough, big enough to deter the, uh, anyone who would want to attack it and to build up Local forces on the ground. It doesn't have to be a permanent presence or a large invasion force, but in order to build up a provisional authority, particularly in Raqqa. Uh, and we should also be seeking, and this is a, even a, a taller order, to drive the regime out of Deir Ezzor and Deir Ezzor province. So eastern Syria should be, Ameri uh, uh, it should be American dominated territory. And we should then be in a negotiation with the Kurds, the, uh, the, the Turks, and ourselves about how that that territory should be um, uh, how how northern Syria um, uh, should be should be governed in the in, in 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 the interim. That would be my ideal. Any anything in that direction would be attractive. It seems that the that the U.S. Israeli discussion is moving is has moved very much in that direction about the about the south but we have these reports about the israeli strikes up in the russian zone because the because the uh because the uh, uh the russians are not preventing the iranians or are possibly even abetting the iranians in carrying out activities that the israelis have, have defined as red lines basically i think that we should adopt the, the israeli red lines as our own and send a message to the russians that we're going to support the israelis to the to, to the hilt on that that increases their that that empowers the Israelis. It gives their deterrence that much more, uh, that much makes their deterrence that much more convincing, and it gives us a greater negotiating position with the Russians vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians. Um, thanks. I'm going to open it up now. Um, can I make one quick point? Yeah, sure, Peter. Yeah. Sort of, uh, I think, just to pair up what what Michael Hanlon said just before that. I think this is also an example where we could see one ally dragging another one into an area where they might be somewhat uncomfortable, and that. Uh, I think the Syrians or the Assad regime looks at the de-escalation zone and they say, here's the line and we own everything up to the line and we'll clean up the opposition in, in Ghouta or whatever, wherever it exists and we're busy in Deir Ezzor. But um, at some point, I presume uh, the Iranians will turn south and then the Russians will be tested. Are they actually able to enforce the de-escalation zone? And I think if the past is any guide, I'm dubious that that will take place. Well, just the, the scenario that I put out, the, the point is... The point is simply to stop giving territory to the Russians and the Iranians, right? I, because I, there's a there's not a lot of appetite in the United States to get into an aggressive conflict with the Russians or anything like that. So I'm trying I'm trying to stop short of that, right. but not give not not hand more to the Russians and the Iranians. Isn't the concern that any pushback is going to cause conflict with the Russians? We will win. Um, right up here in the second row. 
Ruthie, if you can just hold on and wait for the microphone, then identify yourself and... My name is Ruthie Bloom. I'm a journalist and based in Israel. Um, I'd like to ask if you think the Trump administration appreciates the depth and extent of nuclear cooperation between Iran and North Korea. Um, who would like to? Who would like to try that? Give that to Mike. <laughs> That's a. I mean, if you brought, I mean, I, well. They may not know as much about it as you do, or at least, at least not. They may not know about it at the high levels of policymaking. But at the moment, and this gets into a North Korea discussion pretty quickly, I'm afraid, and that's probably not where you wanted to go. But the Trump administration's desire to completely denuclearize North Korea would perhaps be consistent with a concern like the one you just expressed. I happen to think that complete denuclearization of North Korea as our first negotiating goal is unrealistic, and it's actually been the sort of the uh, you know. Albatross for the last three administrations that we haven't been willing to go for a more realistic deal, which I think is some kind of a freeze that includes a freeze on the production of North Korean nuclear material. And very most of the U U.S. sanctions would have to stay in place for this kind of a deal. Anyway, that's a whole separate set of issues. So I may be more vulnerable to your concern or your criticism than the Trump administration, because at least on the face, they're trying to say, let's go for everything being gone from North Korea uh, nuclear technology, nuclear materials, nuclear weapons, the whole kit and caboodle, if they got their way, this axis of cooperation wouldn't be as meaningful. Unfortunately, I don't think they're going to get their way. So your concern remains on the table. Um, right up here. Can, uh, do you have a microphone? Thank you. You can bring it up here to the second row. The gentleman all the way. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, my name is Mark Kim, and I'm the president of the old O'Hanlon Duran fan club. But, oh, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you all started off by saying this isn't just about CT, but what you define is that it's about CT and the great game between the Russians and the Iranians. I'm, I'm reminded of the old NATO saying the purpose of NATO was to keep the Russians out and the Germans down. You've sort of defined a great game, which is to keep the Russians out and keep the Iranians down. But the, the premise of NATO was that there was a good deal for the nations involved uh, that were under the NATO umbrella. What I haven't heard in your strategy where you say it's all about counterterrorism and keeping Russians out, Iranians down, is what's, what's in for the company, countries in the region? Underneath that NATO umbrella of keep the Russians out, the Germans down, was great economic prosperity, great relationships, uh, great cultural relationships between the European NATO members and ourselves. All I'm hearing is that you're asking for the countries in the region to be the foot soldiers in this great game against Iran. Michael Duran, would you like to? No, I, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think that's true. Um, it, it, the, um, we're offering peace and stability. The, if you think of what, if you think of the 10 million people being displaced from Syria, um, and if you think about what's going on right now in, with, the, with, with the Kurds in, in northern Syria, we're sowing our current policy. I'm not saying this is our intention, but our current policy is sowing the seeds of a Turkish-Kurdish war. It's almost, it's, almost an, it, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be some, the, 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 there's, there's some, kind of, uh, some kind of conflict. So um, I, think that the, I think that the Turks would very much relish 
the, the uh, us coming in with our good offices to help mediate the the, the, the relationship with the uh, uh, with the Kurds and to establish some kind of order in, in some kind of order in Syria that would protect their vital interests with regard to the uh, uh, with regard to the Kurds. The the uh, the the, con- the continued instability of Syria, right, is not really it's not in the interest of our of our major. Uh, of our major allies, so I think they would be willing, if we would protect them, to to uh, uh, to offer up resources and to help us shoulder the burden. What's happened? It looks it looks like when you talk to Obama administration pe- uh, people, they always said, well, you know, the 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 the, uh, the Egyptians are not going to help. The uh, the Saudis are no longer concerned about uh, uh, concerned about Syria. The Israelis don't care, and so on. The, all of these, uh, all of these uh, allies of the United States have gone off in different directions. Many of them are making a beeline to Moscow and so on, because we're not because we've left the field. Because we're not willing, as I said earlier to leave, we're not willing to take on their definition of their interests as 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 our interests, or at least talk to them on that on on that basis. If, if we came in as we used to, I think, and not, not offering necessarily economic resources, but a lot of our military power to help them, uh, to help them with their vital interests, I think we would find that they would be very cooperative with us. That's an excellent answer, I think, and an excellent question. And the most important answer is the, st- the strategic goal, the peace and stability. Uh, two more concrete, specific things that I would throw in, and I mentioned them earlier, but to amplify and use them to answer your question, Mark. I do think that we need to think about economic assistance strategies to both countries, both Syria and Iraq. That's what I've got sort of obsessing about in my mind. And with Iraq, I think going back to that range of one to two billion a year in aid, that's to some extent conditioned on certain behaviors that we insist upon and, you know, uh, not tolerating Iranians coming in and assassinating dissident politicians that the regime doesn't like in Baghdad or what have you. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I would use that kind of leverage to try to help them repair their economy and the cities that are in tatters. And then secondly, uh, long-term strategic associations that people like yourself uh, try to build and with some success. But of course, our politics never really, our politics here never really sustain those kinds of commitments. It's probably not realistic or even at the moment strategically sensible to propose uh, a treaty regime with Baghdad uh, or with you know, autonomous zones in eastern Syria. But, uh, but I think indefinite strategic commitment that gets away from this sort of annualized review process that we especially use with Afghanistan but also with Iraq um, in much of the last eight to 10 years would be a step forward. So I would try to give them two concrete things economic help and a long-term security expectation of, of help. And on, on the Syria issue, by the way, just to add one more point, you know, basically all the rich countries in the world are sort of on the side of helping the Sunnis rebuild and not on Assad's side. And we got to find some way to turn that into strategic leverage as well, because what I think we need to figure out and ask our World Bank friends and others in the development world to be helping us think this through, how do you provide aid directly to autonomous zones in the context of they being in opposition to the quote-unquote official or legitimate government in Damascus. We can't wait for Assad's permission to rebuild these areas, and we also can't wait for Assad to be replaced to, be, to rebuild these areas. And we need to figure out how to use aid as a, as a lever to some extent against Assad and in favor of these autonomous zones, at least for a five to 10 year interim period, 
when they are largely self-governing. Uh, I think that kind of thinking needs to be developed further. I agree. No, it's okay. okay. Uh, the gentleman right here in the blue shirt, if you can pass him the microphone, and again, sir, if you would identify yourself. Uh, Bill Lawrence, uh, George Washington University. Um, it was a very interesting image I picked up this panel of sort of Obama arguing against himself and Trump arguing against himself. I'm also thinking of that article in the Atlantic in May about the brilliant incoherence of the Trump foreign policy, how he sort of manages sometimes rhetorically be on both sides of, of every issue. Yet, when you look at the choices made, both on the periphery and the center where we're talking about, there's a lot of continuity there. I mean, Sudan, Kurdish referendum, Libya, Qatar, go right around. I mean, you see all kinds of continuities. Um, so, so given those continuities, um, uh, my question to Michael is, um, uh, and, and in response to um, the other Michael's uh, fantasy and his three choices of us doing it, proxies doing it, or, or giving up the space, what is your, I know you're a very practical guy, <laughs> but, but you know, what is your fantasy of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a new strategic um, approach to the region? What would be the, the guiding, what would be the guiding vision? What would be the optimal outcome? Um, um, you're, again, beyond the sort of practical assessments you're making, what, what would your sort of big, big think be in terms of a strategic Thanks. reorientation? First thing is to say, none of my fantasies involve Michael Duran. That's an obvious <laughs> point, but it's, it's worth underscoring. Sec, sec, second thing would be to say that um, maybe I've given up, uh, and some people in this room who have lived it, uh, like my good friend Mark, uh, maybe you know, there was perhaps a more idealistic period. Uh, and idealism comes and goes in American foreign policy, but probably the beginning of this century was a period of some degree of, of idealism, which for most of us has been uh, brought a little bit down to earth. So um, maybe, even though I'm glad you asked the question, uh, maybe I have to admit I don't have a good answer, and I don't, and I don't really think that way anymore. Uh, I think pragmatically I've got a generation-long struggle against extremism in, in my head I've got a generation-long struggle against Iranian extremism also um, motivating me but I think the strategies have to be country by country and I expect to take a lot of hits and a lot of setbacks and a lot of imperfect you know one step forward two step back kind of situations and ultimately I think most of the strategies need to be developed country by country because ultimately they need to be in the context of that country's politics which is part of why I don't have a good answer to your question there's a gentleman here in the middle in the white shirt who has his hand up on that side. Thanks. Hi, my name is Alan Mendelssohn. I'm retired from the State Department. I want to come to the question of the Kurds. What nobody seems to uh, want to admit is that way back in 1918, the victorious powers of the First World War adopted the Treaty of Sevres that gave the Kurds a homeland, and it included parts of Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. Now, we don't acknowledge that today nobody even knows about it and the papers never talk about it my question to you is why don't we go back to that treaty and say to ourselves not only do the Kurds deserve a homeland but indeed they are our only reliable allies today in the Middle East I agree with the gentleman who said that it's going to cause problems with Turkey but the easy way to avoid a problem with Turkey is to keep the Kurdish homeland, the referendum that they're going to have, limited to Syria and Iraq, and exclude that part of Turkey that was in part of the that was part of the Treaty of Sevres. In, indeed, thank you. Th thanks. Well, why don't we get an answer for you? Okay. Who would like to would like to field that? 
Peter, you're looking down like you don't want to answer it. <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> I can do it. You well, I, I'm, 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 I'm not sure I, I didn't mean to put you in the spot. Mike can do it as well. No, that's fine. I, I, would, I, I just don't think the Turks would see it that way. And in the end, um, uh, I do think we have to be sensible to some of the Turkish criticisms in particular of our dalliances with YPG in, uh, in northern Syria, which for them is PKK, and it is PK, PKK. Um, uh, so, for one, I don't think the Turks see it that way. And more broadly, for American strategy, I'm not sure that we can contest both Turkey and Iran at the same time in the region. So, um, on the hierarchy of choices that we have to take, I, I, I just don't see that as being viable. Mike Duran, would you like to? Yeah, it's a the what you're what you're calling for is a um, is a major American military commitment, major to build up a whole new power um, in the face of opposition from the uh, uh, from the uh, from the Turks. Um, so the effect, first of all, I, I don't think, given the realities of the, our politics, there's going to be a desire to build a. Uh, to have that kind of military, long-term military commitment for that purpose. And then secondly, then you've automatically driven Turkey, uh, not automatically, but likely uh, driven Turkey f further toward the Russians. Um, so uh, I think it, I think that, uh, I'm not saying that we need to hand, um, uh, hand Kurdish territories over to the Turks, but we have to work to build an order in that region that is acceptable to the to the, to the Turks. It strikes me very quickly. I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna answer this in, in my own way very quickly. Um, it strikes me when I hear this: a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, was speaking this morning about how a lot of this talk about the Kurds is uh, like talk about the Arabs a hundred years ago. The idea that the Arabs represent a unified nation and there is one Arab nation, right? Well. As we've seen unfold over the last hundred years, and certainly we see in places like Iraq and Syria right now, there is not one unified Arab nation. And when people often talk about the Kurds, it's the same sort of thing. Without understanding, there are different Kurdish political institutions throughout the region, some of whom, like the uh, KRG, who is pro, that is pro-American, some of which, like the PKK, are still listed by the State Department as a terrorist organization even though both the Obama administration and now the Trump administration is working with it in different ways in Syria. So I think that we should learn how to break these different things up. And as it turns out, it's fascinating because in the same way, a hundred years ago that we were talking about the Arabs, all of this talk sounds like, it sounds like Lawrence of Arabia. And what? Part of it was to push back against the Ottomans. And right now, invariably, talk about the Kurds is pushing back against the Turks. Is this some way that the United States really wants to go without understanding what different Kurdish political institutions look like around the region? I think it's probably best if we slow down a little bit and understand what these different these different pieces look like. Um, Dan, if you could, all right, thanks. Dan Pollock with the Zionist Organization of America. I'm also a member of the Michael Duran fan club, thanks. Uh, but I, I have a question about the JCPOA. Those of us who are uh, have been opponents of the deal from the beginning really made the case against the Obama administration that they weren't taking the Iranian nuclear threat seriously enough in the long term. And now, if we are de-emphasizing terminating the deal, when in the future will the fact that Iran will develop a nuclear capability 
in the next 10, 15 years, when will that be actable upon under the Duran fantasy of how we deal with things? So if we're, if we're saying maybe not now, please tell me when. Well, it's a, and that's a great question, and, and it's the, the most obvious, um, you know, I mean, the most uh, stark problem with what I'm saying is that the temptation with the Iranian nuclear program, as has been the temptation all along and under the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the temptation to kick it down the road and, and really never deal with it um, is, is huge. And I, I, I admit that. I just go back to, to what I said. If, we're, if we cannot stop the Iranians from, from developing a, a, a belt from, from Iraq to Damascus, in an area where we have a predominance of power at the moment. If we're not going to do that, we're not going to wrest that nuclear program from them. Because we can't kid ourselves. We're, we're not going to take the Iranian nuclear program away from the, the, the nuclear program away from the Iranians through some clever maneuver in Congress. That's not going to do it. There has to be a decision at the highest levels of the U.S. government that we are going to that we are going to compete with the Iranians in the nuclear arena and in the regional and in the regional arena simultaneously. One of our, the goals that Peter and I had in writing the article was to contest the the Obama administration's propaganda, and I call it that, choosing my words very carefully, which said that that the there was no connection between the inaction of the United States in Syria. And the JCP and the signing of the JCPOA, it was an unwritten part of the, an unspoken part of the deal that we handed Syria to them in order to get the, in order to get the JCPOA. If we, if we want to overturn that, we're going to have a contest with them in the region and a contest with them uh, if, on the, uh, in, in the, in the nuclear arena. We don't get to pick and choose. It's all one unified, unified struggle. So I just say, at this moment in time. We have the best opportunity to put together an international coalition to stop them from building a beltway from Tehran to Beirut. If we go the other route and we say we're going to decertify on the nuclear uh, on the nuclear issue, our coalition is in disarray. Our allies don't even agree with us. Maybe uh, eventually we can bring them along to our to our position, but I don't see how we get from decertification to winning anything valuable to the United States in this, in, in this conflict with them. So let's put together the coalition. Let's have some moderate but achievable goals like not giving them all of Syria at this, at, at this point, and, and then move from there. That's all. That's the best I can say. Michael, did you want to say anything about, uh, about the JCPOA? Because this is something that, you know, that, we're, that is out there all the time. So do you have a... I guess the only point I would make... Uh, and probably if we had been debating this, you know, two or three or four years ago, we would have been more likely to be in disagreement. But uh, given where we are today, the concept I'm most interested in exploring and thinking about is how do we take Secretary Tillerson's stated desire to make the sunset provisions indefinite and have any chance of negotiating those? And I think probably a lot of what Mike Duran's just been talking about is an element of how you get there, if, if it's achievable at all. So um, to me, I guess I'm just, again, you're looking for a debate, and um, <laughs> it's not always that. But, but I think, uh, but, but again, I, I think that um, that may not be the only uh, set of levers that we would need, and it may not be enough, but I think uh, it makes sense to me. Peter, would you like to say anything about that? 
Um, I am going to uh, I'm going to wrap it up then. And I wanted to thank you very much for coming. I wanted to thank Hudson Institute, and I want to thank especially the three panelists thank for you. Uh, presenting such an interesting afternoon.